This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with fingers crossed everybody knows the war is over everybody knows the good guys lost everybody knows the fight was fixed the poor stay poor the rich get rich that's how it goes everybody knows Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Special uh, birthday wishes going out to my Aunt Edna, who will turn 90 on Tuesday. And my uh, cousins held a a little open house uh, in Brantford on the weekend, and uh, we were there to wish her uh, well. And uh, she says she feels like she's 40, not an ache or a pain, uh, she's happy to report. So uh, good genes uh, on that side of the family, and I hope some of those stuck with me. Welcome to the program for Sunday, March the 21st. The last half hour of the program, we'll throw the lines wide open to you, and uh, you can discuss anything of a uh, conspiratorial or paranormal, supernatural manner, matter, or anything that's just plain weird, as far as uh, you can tell. Uh, next uh, week on the program, I think you're going to want to mark this one down. I'll uh, be speaking with a, um, a very fascinating a doctor, Dr. Apsley, who has... Um, well, m- many of you uh, have probably seen uh, Suzanne Summers making the rounds on uh, TV talk shows talking about uh, alternative therapies uh, for cancer, etc., uh, wait till you hear what uh, Dr. Apsley has to say. He'll be with me. Now, the question du jour, or du, uh, I should say, the uh, the poll question on the website, richardserrett.com, has sort of an Easter theme as we are heading into Easter. And the question is, is the Shroud of Turin the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ? This happens to be, I think, the most significant artifact, or relic, if you will. It would qualify as a relic since it does contain, I believe, actual uh, uh, blood stains. 
And I think that's the, the differentiation between a, uh, a relic and an artifact. I happen, I, I've done a number of shows on the Shroud of Turin, it, and it's, uh, it's absolutely a, a, a passion for me. No pun intended. Anyway, the question is, is the Shroud of Turin the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ? And the choices are yes, and it contains evidence of his resurrection, or no, it is a clever medieval forgery. Uh, and in the next couple of weeks, we will uh, do another show on the Shroud of Turin. At the moment, 83.3% of you say no, it's a clever medieval forgery. 16.7% of you say yes, it is the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ. So we'll uh, look for a show on the Shroud of Turin in the next couple of weeks here on The Conspiracy Show, AM740. My name is Richard Serrett. And as a uh, just a reminder again, in the last half hour of the program tonight, we'll throw the lines wide open to you. And uh, you can discuss anything of a conspiratorial or paranormal uh, nature. All right, to Japan we go. And uh, live on the line, an interesting gentleman who is uh, living and working in uh, Japan. And he's uh, contributed to a number of uh, alternative uh, uh, newspapers abroad and here in Canada. He's also contributed to uh, InfoWars, Alex Jones' uh, website. And uh, he is the author of an online alternative news uh, organ called Corbett Report, The Corbett Report. And we're happy to have on the program James Corbett. Are you there, James? I am here. How are you doing tonight, Richard? Very well and sounding uh, very good and very clear uh, in Japan. What part of the country are you in, uh, uh, James? I'm on the western side of the main island, about halfway between Osaka and Hiroshima. And uh, you're expatriate American, uh, is that correct? As a matter of fact, I'm fellow Canadian. A Canadian, ah, all right. And what uh, what, uh, brought you to Japan, if I might ask? Well, originally, I was just interested in seeing some of Asia. I had never really traveled out this way, and I thought no better way to do it than to uh, come and work here for a year. So I made the plans to start teaching English here for a year and just travel around. But um, it's one of those places that uh, either you take to it or you don't, and it seems like I took to it. So it's now been six years since my original year in Japan. So it looks like I'm maybe here for, for a while. And how long have you been publishing the Corbett Report? So I started the Corbett Report back in 2007, around about June, so we're just coming up on the third anniversary. All right, and uh, the reason that uh, I'm having you on uh, tonight is uh, I read an interesting uh, a snippet from your latest, uh, uh, can I call it a, a documentary? I mean, it's some text and it uh, contains some video reports, but uh, how would you classify uh, the guide to the 9-11 whistleblowers? That's a good question. I tend to refer to it as an article, but I think documentary might be equally adequate. It's difficult to know in this sort of multimedia age where we have all of these different resources combined into one package that can be instantly sent around the world. It's, maybe it requires a new name, but documentary is as good as any other, I think. A guide to the 9-11 whistleblowers. Now, I've, 
uh, done uh, uh, streams and streams of, uh, of uh, programs on 9-11 and uh, examining it uh, from just about every facet. Was it an inside job? If so, where is the evidence? Uh, what brought down the Twin Towers? Was it controlled demolition? Was it uh, particle beam? It's, you name it, I've done it. And, um, but you raised, I think, one of the crucial questions here, and that is uh, because, as you put it, those who debunk or are skeptical of the 9-11 inside story scenario uh, come up with the, uh, you say, the common refrain that something this big, an operation, a clandestine operation this big, if it was in fact an inside job, would require thousands and thousands of co-conspirators. There's no way, the skeptics say, something like that could be kept quiet. And since nobody, uh, sort of from officialdom, no one inside NATO, for example, uh, uh, no one inside the White House or the Pentagon or the State Department uh, is coming forward and spilling the beans, as it were, because that is sort of a human nature. Eventually, you know, someone would, I guess, uh, uh, their guilty conscience or a deathbed confession, somebody with some gravitas, some credibility would have come forward and, and said, yes, it was an inside job. And since nobody, no whistleblower has come forward, therefore that proves their point that it couldn't have been an inside job. Along came, comes uh, uh, James Corbett and says, hold on a second. There is a long and growing list of 9-11 whistleblowers. So before we start uh, getting into who these people are, James, why haven't we heard more about them? Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Why haven't we heard more about them? And uh, I think the answer, the only answer that really suggests itself is that there are interests, whether monetary or otherwise, out there in keeping this type of information off of the mainstream radar. And uh, certainly that's something that you encounter time and again when you're actually talking to some of these whistleblowers is, the fact that they've been struggling for, for years in, in many cases to try to get some attention to their, their story and, and feeling quite miserably. And uh, one can only assume that uh, there's a reason for that, and, and it must have something to do with the, the type of, and the nature of the information they're attempting to convey. So that's something that, that I've been trying to, to highlight in my work, is, is the struggle that the whistleblowers have faced in even just bringing this, this information to the, the public, in light of public scrutiny. And, and some of the incredible things that are going on in the U.S. right now to try to suppress even what very few rights national security whistleblowers do have, and, and new legislation that's being dreamt up in the Senate to try to uh, take away even some of the, the rights that they do have. So this is a very important is issue and one that I've been trying to cover in, in detail in a lot of different ways. But one of them that I, I've been attempting to do is to actually talk to some of the 9-11 whistleblowers. So in the last, uh, even the last month or two, I've talked to, to three of the people featured in my guide to the 9-11 whistleblowers. All right, and we will uh, uh, run down the list and uh, what a list it is. James Corbett, live from Japan, the author of The Corbett Report, www.corbettreport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T-Report.com. It's linked up on my website, richardserrett.com. A guide to the 9-11 whistleblowers. Get on board with questions and comments at 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740. Toll free from out of town, from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, one 844 740. Don't go away. 
When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. The 9-11 whistleblowers, they're out there. They, uh, they come from uh, the corporate world. They come from various uh, government agencies. And we're about to uh, let you know who they are and what they've said. James Corbett on the line from Japan, where he uh, has been working for uh, six or seven years. And he publishes online the Corbett Report. Now, let's start, uh, James, uh, with the, uh, the 9-11 Commission itself. Uh, and, and some people might be... Uh, surprised to know that six out of the 10 9-11 commissioners actually have questioned the commission itself and its conclusion. And uh, they said essentially uh, that they were set up to fail. We're talking about uh, Keene and Hamilton, Carey, uh, Lehman and and, uh, Cleland. Um, But well, let's let's talk about what they actually said. Those those um, dissenting commission members. Uh, what did they actually say about um, the report that they had sell? They 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 themselves had penned. Well, you mentioned the uh, set up to fail comment, and in fact, that's a direct quote. Both Thomas Kane and Lee Hamilton, the co-chairs of the nine eleven commission, both have said they were set up to fail. That's a a direct quote. And they talk about the ways that um, the Bush administration uh, starved them for funds and hurried their work uh, before they were really ready to release it and and various other tricks that were played. And of course, famously, you had uh, Bush and Cheney, for example, not uh, wanting to testify in public. So they went behind closed doors. They wouldn't testify under oath. Uh, they had to testify together. They had all these conditions for how and when they could testify uh, to the 9-11 Commission. And uh, all, all sorts of, I mean, so much has come out about the 9-11 Commission and the way it functioned, uh, including the fact that all of the people who were who did testify or, or were talked talk to the 9-11 Commission had to have government-approved handlers overseeing their testimony so that there was never a time, for example, when FBI whistleblower Colleen Rowley was able to simply talk to the 9-11 commissioners. She always had to go through one of the government handlers. And, and there, there's so much about that coming out. And also you get uh, people like uh, Max Cleland, who was one of the 9-11 commissioners, who ended up resigning after saying that uh, the Bush administration was, was just turning it into a farce. By the way, they weren't cooperating with the commission. They were trying to withhold information from the commission. Uh, you have commission members uh, that were actually contemplating holding criminal charges against uh, Pentagon officials who they found had actually lied to the 9-11 Commission about the, the Pentagon's response on that day. And afterwards, they said, we could understand that there may have been confusion on the day about what was happening and, and people might have been confused. But for you know months and even years later, for the Pentagon to still deliberately put forward information they knew to be wrong is uh, unthinkable and the only thing they could they could think was that they should start to bring criminal proceedings against those people who had lied to the 9-11 commission well it's it's um, one thing though uh, uh, james uh, for the um the six 
9-11 commissioners to say that they were being obfuscated or, or the, the government was uh, or members of the, the Pentagon, etc., were obfuscating or were stonewalling or were uh, li- even lying to them about the, the military's lack of response on that day. But that's another, it's another thing to suggest that these commissioners are suggesting that 9-11 was an inside job. Well, absolutely. Those are two separate issues. And, and there's, I guess, like uh, Russian dolls, they fit inside each other. There's, there's two ways of taking a look at the way that uh, the 9-11 Commission was co-opted and set up to fail. And that's either that there was a cover-up to try to hide the incompetence of the government, or there was a cover-up to try to hide the complicity of the government. And either way, they both look like a cover-up, and they'll both seem to be the same from, from the outside perspective which one would assume is, is the way the 9-11 Commission members are phrasing it. So I would, I would agree that we can't say from, from those comments that these 9-11 commissioners are, are believed this to be an inside job. Obviously, most of them don't. But the point is that they're pointing to the, the ways that uh, the cover-up took place, and the cover-up is suggestive of the fact that there is something to cover up. And again, we have to use other sources of information to determine whether that's complicity of the government or merely incompetence that people want to cover up to, to secure their position. Well, listen, I, I, I know uh, a lot of, uh, I call them skeptics, and that is uh, those that uh, are skeptical or would, are, would downright debunk the idea of an, a, a 9-11 being an inside job. But I, I, many of them would agree that uh, there was a cover-up and that the, co- the nature of the cover-up was to hide uh, gross incompetence. And, and I suppose you could call that a conspiracy. They conspired to cover up gross incompetence. But uh, that's, that's the end of it, they say. It's, it's that this was a colossal um, screw-up on the, on the part of, uh, uh, well, just about everyone, the CIA, the FBI, the State Department... But again, right, and yeah, I, I, again, that's as far as they're going to go with it. They're not, they're not going to say that this is, uh, this is, in any way, uh, an admission to, uh, uh, or, or, or an indication that it was an inside job. Right, exactly, and and I, I that's why I think if we just looked at the nine eleven commissioner statements in, in and of themselves, it wouldn't really be suggestive of, of anything, or it wouldn't be indicative of anything else. But but when we start to look at the other aspects of the story that are tied in, we see it's not just one or two slip-ups by, by some people who are then obviously interested in covering up their own position. It's a fundamental series of things that were allowed to happen. And in fact, sometimes people were even overridden from doing their regular job, just fulfilling their regular duties in order to allow certain things to happen, which ended up in 9-11 taking place. So it, it, the larger picture is one that I was trying to put in the guide to the 9-11 whistleblowers, and the 9-11 commission members are just one aspect of it. Right, agreed. Uh, yes, yeah, so you're laying the groundwork here, and that's why we begin with the 9-11 commission. Now, but back to the commission for a second, and then we'll move on. Uh, uh, Commissioner Bob Carey, there is a quote attributed to him that he was saying 9-11 was a 30-year conspiracy. What did he say exactly, and what did he mean by that? 
That's an excellent question and one that I would really hope that some uh, member of the, the mainstream media with access to Commissioner Kerry would get him to elaborate on. But unfortunately, uh, we don't have that luxury, so we end up with groups like We Are Change, which was the one that originally questioned him and got him on the record saying that it was a 30-year conspiracy. What does that mean? Well, uh, one could only assume that, that he's talking about uh, either some sort of fundamental systemic uh, problems that were going on. Perhaps he was referring to the fact that Al-Qaeda was founded, funded, and established by the CIA in Afghanistan in the 1970s. I mean, there are a number of different ways to interpret that comment, but certainly it's very evocative and very interesting that he basically runs away from the conversation as soon as he makes that comment. So again, it's something that I think if there were, if there was a genuine mainstream media that was interested in doing its job, they, they would follow up on, on statements like that. But unfortunately, we're just left to speculate, and, and there are many different ways that we could uh, fill in that blank, I think. James Corbett of The Corbett Report joins me as we talk about his uh, documentary slash article, A Guide to the 9-11 Whistleblowers, and we will get to FBI agent Sybil Edmonds and her remarks when The Conspiracy Show returns after this. Stay with us. It is time for the people of the United States to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Thank you. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarek from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. James Corbett on the line from Japan as we talk about his documentary, A Guide to the 9-11 Whistleblowers. All right, James, we've, uh, we've got to talk about uh, Sybil Edmonds. This, I think, is one of the more d- damning, um, uh, I guess, uh, testimonials, if you will, uh, to come out uh, recently. And um, first of all, set this up a little bit. Who is, who is uh, Sybil Edmonds or what was she uh, doing in the, in the uh, days, months uh, leading up to uh, 9-11? Well, it was in the, just uh, after 9-11 took place that uh, Sybil Edmonds decided to, to uh, join the FBI as a language expert because uh, from her background, she's fluent in Turkish and Azerbaijani, and she can also speak Farsi. So she offered her services to the FBI in the wake of 9-11 after having watched that horrific attack. She, she was motivated to try to help the FBI and had learned that there had been a, a, a lack of, of people in the translation department fluent in Middle Eastern languages, and that had been contributory to the, to the, uh, the failure of the FBI, or so the official story says. So she uh, immediately signed up, and, and I think it was only about four or five days after the uh, attack that she was hired by the FBI to work in there translation department, uh, translating documents from various uh, intercepts and in, in, in various forms of intelligence that the FBI was gathering from, uh, from numerous uh, sources, but uh, specifically she was working in Turkish, so that was uh, from mostly uh, Turkish-type uh, sources in, in the United States. 
And it was not long before she started to encounter some information that was very troubling, not only for 9-11 and the implications of that, but in fact something that goes even bigger and wider and a deeper story, if that can be believed. And um, when she started uh, uncovering what she called gross negligence and, and criminal conspiracy in the FBI and the State Department, what was she, in fact, uh, uh, finding out? Well, uh, one of the things that, that she found out specifically related to 9-11 was that there had been uh, uh, some documents that a field uh, uh, agent uh, working in the field had sent to the translation department for, for translation because the agent felt that it, it probably had something to do with, um, with preparation for an attack. And uh, the, the translation came back that it, it was not relevant. It had, it, the information was not of any substance. And after the 9-11 attack took place, that agent uh, again requested, requested that that document be retranslated because, again, this, this agent felt very strongly there was information in this document, which unfortunately the agent couldn't read because it was in a, a different language, that, that ha- pertained to the attacks. And, again, uh, at this point, Sibyl Edmonds says that the, uh, having the inside perspective on the translation department, she knows that that document was retranslated and was found to actually contain very specific information related to the 9-11 attacks, contain foreknowledge of the attacks themselves, but the, uh, the retranslation was not only not given to the agent, but the old translation was then recertified by the translation manager, the manager of the department, and the agent was again told that there was no information related to the 9-11 attack. So quite specifically, there was information foreknowledge of the 9-11 attacks that was covered up by the translation department. And, uh, and there, there was also information that Development says she came across that relates specifically to Osama bin Laden and how Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda had been working for U.S. intelligence and with the U.S. government right up to the day of 9/11. And she says she has that from information that she had firsthand, not secondhand. So uh, some very explosive information, and that's only the the tip of the iceberg of the information she was uncovering. Again, to recap, uh, Edmonds revealed that Osama bin Laden had been working for U.S. intelligence right up to the day of 9-11, and she knows that firsthand. That's, that's what she says, and she, she said that on the, uh, the Mike Malloy program last year, and uh, that's uh, widely available online. People can go and listen to it. It's even linked up in the Guide to the 9-11 Whistleblowers, where she talks about the firsthand information she has. She doesn't speculate about 9-11 inside job. She has firsthand information which she goes off of, and that's one of the things she, she has said, although hasn't really elaborated on exactly how that relationship worked. And uh, when she came out and made these statements, had she by this time resigned from the FBI, or is she, was she still employed by the FBI? Right. Well, originally, when she was coming out with uh, some of her information, not only about 9-11, but also about aspiring that she said was operating and within the translation department and, and was recru- attempting to recruit her even, originally she tried to work within the FBI system and was uh, reporting this information to her managers and uh, eventually all the way up the chain of command to the director of the FBI at the time. And uh, she was going through those types of uh, circuits but was being not only not listened to, but was in fact being started, started to be thwarted, and she, she had her security clearance taken away. She was uh, not allowed to work on the, the, the things that she was working on before she started making these complaints. And eventually she was uh, fired, 
Uh, I think that was in 2002, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And then uh, in 2004, the, the Office of the Inspector General issued a report that, that completely vindicated her and said that none of the allegations she made, she made had been refuted by the FBI and that uh, all ind- indications were that the FBI had fired her specifically because she was trying to blow the whistle on them. So then she went the uh, congressional route and she was trying to talk to uh, various senators and then various congressmen trying to get some traction to get more of an airing for, for the things that she was coming out with. And uh, although the many promises were made, uh, once the inspector general issues his report, we'll, we'll bring these types of hearings up in the Senate or once uh, Congress, uh, Democrats take control of Congress in the 2006 midterm elections, once that happens, we'll, we'll bring this up in, in our committee hearings. But so far, absolutely nothing has really come forward of any substance and, uh, of course, Sybil Edmonds is known as one of the most gagged people in the history of the United States because of a, a draconian uh, piece of, of, of legis- not, not even legislation, an executive uh, fiat uh, power that was enacted by the Ashcroft uh, Department of Justice to gag her um, from even using her First Amendment right to free speech by saying that uh, what the information she had pertained to, to national state secrets and therefore could not be talked about and could not even be brought up in court, which is really just a, an incredible, unbelievable abuse of, of power uh, to, to try to classify the information she, she was blowing the whistle on and an indication perhaps that uh, the information she has affected people in high places in a very, very deep way. But that hasn't stopped her from uh, speaking out. I'm, I'm guessing mainly to the alternative media. Has she appeared on any mainstream uh, uh, newscasts or, uh, or, or or television or radio programs or been uh, quoted in the New York Times or a- anywhere like that? She has indeed. In 2002, when she was first coming public with her story, uh, 60 Minutes aired a report with her. But uh, in the interview that I conducted with her recently, and that's up on my YouTube channel, uh, she was talking about how the 60 Minutes report had focused specifically on the what she called the employment drama aspects of her case, that here is this uh, this cute woman who had, was a patriotic American and had been fired from her job for speaking the truth. And they made it more about that aspect of it, but they didn't want to talk anything about what specifically she was she was talking about, the information that she was trying to bring to light. And uh, eventually the, the uh, other mainstream outlets picked up on it. The New York Times covered her case uh, as it was developing in 2004. But uh, aside from that, there hasn't been a lot of mainstream coverage. And then she has been working with alternative media outlets as well, but currently she's actually trying to bring, build her own base at her own website, Boiling Frogs Post, where she is trying to assemble a team of, of journalists and other whistleblowers to try to report on this information themselves because it, they've realized if they, if they don't do it for themselves, it's just not going to get done because the uh, corporate media has an interest in not letting this information come to light. James Corbett is with us, The Corbett Report. He joins us live from Japan, and we're talking about his documentary, A Guide to the 9-11 Whistleblowers. Now back to uh, these mistranslated documents, Sybil Edmonds claiming again a uh, a criminal conspiracy in the FBI and the State Department uh, where an FBI field agent uh, suspected that a document he had, although he couldn't translate it, uh, did contain uh, important knowledge regarding the 9/11 attack, and it was uh, this document was uh, mistranslated, perhaps deliberately. Uh, now, was she able to? And you talked to her, uh, James. 
Was she able to reveal to you anything about the contents of that uh, that document specifically? Uh, no, we didn't. We didn't get into that specifically. We were talking more about the uh, the aspects of whistleblowing. But she uh, she has talked a, a little bit about this. I, from my understanding of it, and and uh, I'd have to refresh myself with the case. But my understanding of it is that her information about that um, that mistranslated document was coming through another FBI agent that she had been working with, who I guess was more involved with that case. Um, so he was he was conveying that information to her, and then she was conveying that as as part of the information that she had encountered while working in the translation department. All right, and she had firsthand knowledge. She maintained she has firsthand knowledge that Bin Laden was working for uh, the CIA right up until the day of nine eleven. She has firsthand knowledge of that, correct? Right, that's what she said at the, on the Mike Malloy program. Yes, was she, has she been able to uh, present any evidence? Uh, to support that claim, as far as I know, there's no there's no documentary evidence because, as I say, as soon as she started to to even question this to the FBI, her security clearance was immediately revoked, and suddenly she didn't have access to the documents that she was working on before. So I think there's been an, a deliberate attempt since day one to try to prevent her from from taking any of this information or, or getting it out to the people. Um, so I, as far as I know, there's no documentary evidence that she that she has uh, brought out from the FBI, but certainly there there are things that, that have entered the public record now that that uh, she has brought to public attention. Now, again, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about what a skeptic, uh, maybe listening to this program, m- might say, or a debunker, uh, and they might suggest that uh, here we have a Sybil, Sybil Edmonds, a... Um, a translator, and they're going to probably use the pejorative uh, uh, designation, a lowly translator, you know, uh, uh, toiling in the uh, the trenches, uh, a lower echelon uh, uh, employee for uh, for FBI for the FBI. Why should we believe her? She only worked there for a few months. Uh, she claims to have uh, firsthand knowledge, but we haven't seen any evidence. Uh, she she heard about a mistranslated document secondhand, but we haven't seen that document. Why should we believe anything that Sybil Edmonds uh, says, James Corbett? That's a great question, and I think that's a question that we should ask not only of Sybil Edmonds and other 9-11 whistleblowers, but of course also to the other agencies which are, are supposedly telling us the official story of what happened on that day. And I think that's a great leveling question, because uh, unless we start asking why we believe any particular story over another, w- what basis do we have for that belief? If we can't establish that, then then really what do we have to work from? So I think that's something that, that I would agree people should ask about people like Sybil Edmonds, but they should also be asking that about the, the people who are trying to counter that information. And I would suggest to the skeptics uh, that, that are listening that uh, if, if the official uh, investigations are, are what you're interested in, then the Office of the Inspector General's 2004 report, which said that the FBI could not refute any of her claims, might be a, a good place to start when we, when we want to consider how, how accurate she is as a source. Uh, let's uh, move on to uh, another member of the FBI, um, and this is the Minneapolis Field Office Chief Counsel, uh, Colleen Rowley. Uh, what is a uh, what is uh, what is it that she did? To f- what is it a field office chief counsel? This is a um, a lawyer for the Minneapolis field office for the FBI. Is that correct? That's right. My understanding is that she was uh, basically giving legal counsel to to the FBI and and working from that aspect of it. And and she had some information that pertained to uh, the way that a case 
uh, of the case of Zacharias Musawi, who was called the 20th hijacker because he was allegedly supposed to be one of the, the people involved in the, in the 9-11 plot, but uh, ended up not, not taking part in it. But he was detained in August of 2001, and Colleen Rowley had the inside story of the way that that case was handled by uh, FBI management uh, when FBI field agents were attempting to, to get information uh, from Musawi. And we're simply trying to, to go through, basically get the legal permission to go through his possessions and see what information they could garner from that. And this was after he had already been detained by the FBI. So uh, there was a, quite a legal struggle to try to even get into Musawi's laptop, for instance, to see what types of uh, documents and information he had. Now, this was basically he was detained because he was one of these uh, people who was training to fly planes but was exhibiting suspicious activity, we'll say. And uh, this was after the Phoenix memo from a field agent in, from the field office in, in Phoenix had t- tipped the uh, FBI off into the uh, number of people that were training in flight schools for, for a possible upcoming attack. So there was very good reason for suspecting that this person might have been involved in something. And as it turns out, retrospectively, yes, Musawi did have information that would have led to the uncovering of the plot, but the uh, the FBI field agents were prohibited from actually searching him because they could not get the clearance from the FBI management to to pre- begin the, the criminal proceedings. So, uh, just to clarify, uh, management at uh, the FBI were throwing up obstacles to uh, those FBI agents who who wanted to investigate further, people like Zacharias Musari and others uh, who were, were, um, were taking uh, training at flight schools, for example. They, they, they were throwing up roadblocks preventing these people, these uh, suspected uh, or very suspicious uh, individuals from being in further investigated. That's right, and it's not, it's not just that it was some sort of bureaucratic tie-up or, or just one of those things that happens with, with paperwork, but the types of roadblocks that were being set up were, were just really ridiculous and, and were not routinely used by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, for example, when uh, I believe it was French authorities confirmed that Musawi had been working uh, with, uh, with foreign operatives uh, and that therefore he, he was a potential terrorist who, who the FBI would have every right to go and, and search the possessions, uh, the FBI management decided that they would make uh, an FBI uh, attaché in France go through every phone book in, in France looking for other Zacharias Musawis to make sure that it wasn't another Zacharias Musawi that they were talking about. Uh, and things like that, which, which were far from routine and which were roadblocks that, that seemed to be almost delaying tactics to prevent uh, this case from going forward. Were any of these individuals uh, uh, subpoenaed, or uh, did any of these individuals speak before the 9/11 Commission? Uh, that's a that's a good question. To my knowledge, uh, the, I'm not sure if this case was was specifically covered, and the the people involved in this case specifically. But certainly, uh, if, if it was covered by the 9/11 Commission, it, it did not make a, a significant dent in the final report. Which, which did cover some of the, the failures in various agencies but, uh, and did talk about some of the problems with, with people like Musawi, but uh, as far as I know, no one, certainly no one was disciplined for it or, or suffered any, any ill consequences uh, in terms of their employment because of these, uh, well, at the very least, these fundamental mistakes, we'll call them. Now, I, um, 
I wouldn't classify this next individual as a whistleblower. He's not on, on, on your list, but I have uh, uh, spoken to Paul Craig Roberts in the past, and um, he is, um, well, he's a, he's the co-founder of, uh, of uh, Reaganomics. He was uh, Reagan's uh, assistant secretary of the Treasury and, and uh, for better or worse, was, the, was one of the people that came up with the whole idea of, of, of Reaganomics. Quite, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to speak, to speak with him. Quite an interesting individual. But, but he, in so many words, uh, told me on the air that uh, he suspected it was a 9-11, uh, that 9-11 was uh, an inside job as well. I mean, he made sort of vague allusions to a uh, sort of a shadow a, a, a government. Um, have you ever had uh, discussions with Paul Craig Roberts about this? Uh, not about 9-11 specifically. I did have him on the program last year to talk about the uh, Iranian riots that were going on after the, uh, the election there, but I didn't talk with him about that specifically. But I know he has, uh, he has alluded to that, that fact or that, that, that possibility on numerous times. I'm not sure if he's really come out and, and stated it clearly that, that it was a possible inside job, but certainly he has made that illusion. But, but it's, uh, certainly the, he would not be alone in terms of, of people who had enjoyed high-ranking positions in governments to come forward with the possibility that 9-11 was an inside job. And, of course, in Japan, uh, here we have a high-ranking member of the, the Japanese diet, uh, who's, uh, Yukihisa Fujita, who has come forward and, and actually presented in the Japanese parliament uh, evidence about uh, the way the, the buildings had fallen and, and saying that it was a highly suspicious incident and talking about false flag terrorism. And, and we have uh, the group called Political Leaders for 9-11 Truth that includes lots of people who have been in Congress, people who have uh, served in the U.S. government, people who have uh, German defense minister like uh, Andreas van, van Bulow, many many high-ranking officials in many governments around the world have come forward to say that they don't believe the the official government story of 9/11, and uh, that extends, uh, of course, not only to to government uh, officials but also people in all sorts of professions. We have the architects and engineers uh, talking about the way the buildings collapsed. So certainly, this does go uh, extremely wide-ranging with lots of uh, credit people from all sorts of different walks of life and different uh, areas of expertise. All right, uh, James Corbett, stay where you are when we come back. We'll uh, talk about another 9-11 whistleblower, a 20-year veteran of the State Department's Forest Foreign Service, no less. Uh, back with more. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Again, a reminder, at uh, 12.30, we'll open up the phone lines and make them available uh, to you to discuss just about anything you'd like uh, of a conspiratorial or paranormal, supernatural uh, nature. And if you'd like to get in on this discussion with uh, James Corbett of The Corbett Report and his uh, documentary, A Guide to the 9-11 Whistleblowers, we'd uh, love to hear from you at 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. And toll-free from out of town, 1-866-740-4740, 866-740-4740. On to J. Michael Springman, a 20-year veteran of the State Department's Foreign Service. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Michael Springman and uh, what he had to say. Well, um, Michael Springman was working in the uh, Jeddah, US, in the U.S. consulate in Jeddah, and he was working as the, the That's in the Saudi Arabia. So he was the guy that was approving or, or rejecting visa uh, requests from various people in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and that was back in 1988-89. 
And during his time there, uh, well, even before his time there, as he was uh, going off to, to take up that assignment, he had been talking to the, the, uh, the head of the consulate there and been talking to various people who were all uh, quite pleased to have him there because quite displeased with the last person who had headed that role because he had been assured by, by many people that from time to time there were, there were people that they wanted to give visas to that the, the last person wouldn't actually approve their vi- the visa, so they were having some problems with that. So they were quite happy to have a new person there. And uh, unfortunately, the exact same thing started to happen to Mr. Springman. So he was there and was rejecting visa requests from, from people who clearly were not qualified to get a visa, people who didn't have ties to uh, Saudi Arabia, didn't make them likely to return to Saudi Arabia once getting to America, people who didn't couldn't say where they were going to in America or what they were going to do there or how long they were going to stay, these types of things. So he would reject those types of visas, and sometimes he would uh, get to the, the head of the consulate even to, to override those decisions. And uh, he didn't really understand what was going on, but he knew something was happening. So he was starting to co- collect the information about the the different visas that he had rejected that the, uh, the consulate ended up approving. And eventually he, he had gone through all the channels that he was supposed to go through to, to issue complaints and even complain to the State Department in Washington about it and had talked to various officials about the problems going on there. But it wasn't until after his experience there, um, after he returned to Washington, that he started to find out what it what was really going on there, and he learned from some of the sources that he had uh, in the government and also from some journalist sources that, in fact, the Jeddah uh, consulate was being used as a way to conduit uh, Afghan uh, Afghani fighters for resistance fighters for the. Uh, uh, the the Mujahideen, which were of course engaged in fighting the Soviet Union at the time, and, and thus uh, with Osama bin Laden were America's golden boys in the region and were the freedom fighters. And these people were being shipped in through the Jeddah uh, consulate, getting their visas to come into the America for training, and then being shipped back off to Afghanistan. So that was that was the story that he eventually uncovered. It was basically the CIA facilitating their access to the U.S. on on behalf of the CIA's asset, Osama bin Laden. But even, and, I mean, uh, no one is, even uh, uh, officials, uh, you know, in the in the White House and, and Dick Cheney, and, and none of them would deny that they cozied up to uh, uh, bin Laden uh, and the Mujahideen. They, perhaps you could say, made the deal with the devil to fight the bigger devil, which at the time was the Soviet Union. So that the fact that the... Um, Jeddah consulate in Saudi Arabia was being used to funnel in Afghan Mujahideen into the U.S. for training, as you say, facilitated by the CIA on behalf of their asset, Osama bin Laden, wouldn't come as a shock to to many people. Um, I think that's pretty well all out in the open. But I guess the bigger question then is, was this same consulate being used to funnel in any of the alleged 9-11 hijackers? Do we have that paper trail? Right. Well, that's that's exactly the question, isn't it? And it is that exact consulate in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, from which 15 of the 9-11 hijacker visas were issued. And, uh, and most of them actually were, were issued under a special Visa Express program that had been instituted only months before 9-11, and which facilitated some of the so-called muscle hijackers' entry into the United States. And this Visa Express program was uh, a special program that, that basically allowed... Uh, 
groups of people to apply uh, through a, a travel agency for, for group visas and, and facilitated the process so where they didn't even have to be interviewed at the consulate as was normally the case. And that's the way that a lot of the 9-11 hijackers got in. And uh, Michael Springman, in when I was talking to him last month, uh, he said that uh, he had been talking to another whistleblower, a DEA whistleblower by the name of Sully Castillo, who said that it was a preferred method of U.S. intelligence to use a uh, travel agency type uh, group visa approval process. Just slipping in one of their agents in, into the pile was one of their preferred way of getting access to uh, to visas for their agents. So. So this was all part of that, uh, that uh, I guess, what was being gestured to by Springman, which was the, the, the ways in which visa approval process and, and the, uh, the, the consulates in general are, are really infested with the intelligence agencies. And, and I can't remember the exact figure, but uh, he, he said there of the 20-something people that were working in the, uh, the consulate at the time, there were only three that he knew of that did not have any connection to uh, U.S. intelligence. So that gives you an indication of just how pervasive uh, U.S. intelligence is in the, in the critical points of entry for the U.S. And just another indica- indication of that happened recently with the, the so-called underwear bomber. Who it turns out, yes, the State Department was uh, attempting to revoke it, it, his visa, but what, that was overruled by an intelligence agency, an unnamed intelligence agency at this point, that that basically wanted him to to retain his visa so they could continue to keep tabs on him. All right, they keep tabs on him right up until he blew up an airplane. So, so this is part of a, a much wider point. I think you're starting to build a case now, uh, James. Processes. James, I think you're starting to build a case now. James Corbett is with the Corbett Report and a guide to the 9-11 whistleblowers. Back with more. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. If you'd like to learn to write, produce, and host in the exciting field of uh, talk radio, talk television, I will be offering a 39-hour, 13-week course beginning Thursday, April the 8th through the Toronto Media and Film College. Again, that's Thursday, April the 8th. New classes begin. The deadline to register through the college is Friday, April the 2nd. And uh, one of the things that um, we're going to offer uh, students is a, uh, a professionally produced uh, a demo, uh, television broadcast quality a demo, which in itself is uh, worth the price of admission. So for more details, go to richardserrett.com, click on the Talk the Talk uh, banner on the right-hand side, and if you need to contact me with uh, for more information, there's um, contact information right there as well, or you can go to torontomediafilmcollege.com and um, call the college directly and get information. Again, that's Thursday, April the 8th. New classes begin at the Toronto Media and Film College and uh, register now. Seating is limited. All right, James Corbett is with us and his documentary, A Guide to the 9-11 Whistleblowers. 
And uh, we need to go back to the FBI. Geez, there's a lot of people coming forward from the FBI. This would be the, I believe, the third uh, that we've discussed tonight. And that would be a special agent, Robert Wright, who was with the Chicago field office. And uh, tell us about the investigation that he spearheaded into uh, terrorist financing. Right. Well, just on that note of FBI whistleblowers, I, I would like to stress that, that there are so many people that come forward from the FBI with these types of stories. And there, there's really, when you start to look into the, the 9-11 case, you start to realize there were so many field agents that, that really did have a, a lead on, on what was happening. And we're putting some of the pieces together at, at every key point where we're just overruled by their managers and, and people who had the authority to kill their investigations. So uh, absolutely, there were a lot of agents that were, that were very much doing their job and were very close to piecing together the, the, the pieces of the puzzle. So that's something to keep in mind. But Robert Wright's story, I think, is fascinating and touches on actually really one of the, the raw nerves of 9-11 and, and goes to one, the real fundamental heart of, I think, what was taking place on that day from an operational level. And basically, uh, he was working in the Chicago field office back in the 1990s, and he uh, had started a, a terrorist financing uh, investigation that was codenamed Vulgar Betrayal. And this was looking into the various ways that terrorists were moving money around and, and financing operations in various countries. And uh, he was doing an exceptionally good job and, and had been uh, praised on numerous occasions by his superiors and in his performance evaluations. And uh, then he began looking into a certain global terrorist financier called Yasin Al-Qadi, uh, who was actually designated by the U.S. Treasury Department as a glo globally specially designated terrorist in October of 2001. And uh, that was largely based on the work that the groundwork that Robert Wright had been doing in the 1990s, tracking Al-Qadi, who was a Saudi multimillionaire, and the ways that he was uh, tied to various charities and, and other the types of fronts that were being used to fund terrorist operations. And uh, he, he came across evidence that he thought tied Yasin al-Qadi into the 1998 African embassy bombings. And uh, when he wanted to open a criminal proceeding against al-Qadi for that, he was told in no uncertain terms by his superior that there would be no investigation into it. There would be no criminal investigation. No criminal proceeding would go ahead. So um, he was overruled, and eventually, uh, a year later, he was taken off the investigation, the vulgar betrayal investigation, despite the fact that they had actually seized $1.4 million of assets related to terrorist financing in Yasin al-Qadi the year before. So it was enjoying some spectacular successes, but he was taken off the case. And uh, it, that story is absolutely fundamental to what happened in 9-11, because it relates not only to to other whistleblowers, but in fact to the larger story of what was taking place on the day. And I don't know if you want to get into this before the break, but uh, it, it relates to a story of a, a software company called P-Tech. Uh, well, yes, because that gets us uh, into um, uh, allegations, testimony, if you will, by uh, a risk management consultant for J.P. Morgan. And it, we, the, uh, sh uh, she'll be next, I guess, on the, uh, on the list of 9-11 uh, whistleblowers that we'll discuss. But uh, let's get back to Robert Wright and specifically about his work on, on vulgar betrayal. Now, the, um, the, U, the U.S. Treasury had already designated Yasin al-Qadi as a global terrorist financer, uh, financier. So it, it wasn't necessarily Wright's investigation of Yasin al-Qadi specifically, uh, was it, that, 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 that had him uh, uh, demoted or, or censored? 
or, no, or he, was it? He, uh, Yassin al-Qadi wasn't declared a globally specially designated terrorist until October of 2001, after 9-11. And they used for the, 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 the case that they made for, for that was largely based on the vulgar betrayal investigation that Wright had been doing in the 1990s. So it was his sort of groundwork that he'd been doing at that time, uh, tracing al-Qadi and his various uh, fronts and organizations. But one of them specifically was this software firm called P-Tech, which was founded in 1994, if I, if I remember correctly, in Quincy, Massachusetts. And uh, this firm was founded in part by uh, a, a generous $5 million investment by Yasin Al-Qadi. And, uh, and this, uh, this story is, is really incredible. It, it goes to the very heart of what was happening that day because P-Tech was a, a firm that was specializing in a certain type of software called Enterprise uh, Architecture Management Software, which would basically give one user an ability to look over an entire uh, system, an entire organization, an entire even a governmental agency, uh, and give sort of backdoor access to, to the, or the God's eye view of all of the things that were taking place in that organization uh, on a computer systems level, but also in terms of assets and other things that could be monitored, uh, that could be entered into databases and sort of uh, examined from a computer level. And, and this firm, which was founded in part by this globally designated special specially designated terrorist, uh, went on to get contracts with uh, some of the most sensitive agencies in the U.S. government, including the White House, uh, the Department of Defense, uh, the Pentagon, the FAA, the, even uh, NATO was one of the clients of this firm. And uh, so Indira Singh came along, and she, she used a lot of what Robert Wright was working on as the basis for her investigation of PTEC, which came because she was actually a risk management consultant for J.P. Morgan, and she had been considering using PTEC software until she started looking into the background of the company. And she started to discover that uh, the, the PTEC had been running, basically working in the basement of the FAA on the morning of 9-11, running drills on the interoperability of FAA systems with the Pentagon and, and, and NORAD emergency. And NORAD. Exactly, NORAD specifically. So it, coordinating what would happen in the event of an emergency, like, say, a terrorist hijacking, and how those uh, systems would communicate with each other. And then we get, of course, the, the 9-11 tapes, which show that uh, there, not only were there drills going on on, on the morning of 9-11 quite famously, and I think quite importantly for the, a deeper understanding of how the, uh, the attacks really were allowed to happen, but uh, that this system was actually controlling the, the types of computer systems that were, that were directing the entire response. And it, 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 the, the implication is that a single person operating this P-TECH software at a single location could have feasibly directed the entire NORAD operation and response to the, the 9-11 attacks by basically using the back door, the secret key, which P-TECH had, and which, oh, by the way, this globally specially designated terrorist was a financier of. Yes, we're going to have to come back and, and delve into this a little uh, uh, in a little more detail, uh, James, because to me, this might be the heart of the matter. This might be the uh, elusive piece of the puzzle. Again, we have testimony from a risk management consultant for J.P. Morgan in 2001, who was uh, looking for some risk management software for the firm she settled on uh, a presentation from a company called P-Tech, whose clients included NORAD, the FAA, 
the IRS, the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Department of Defense, the Treasury, the White House. Oh, my word. What a tangled web we weave. P-TECH funded by a uh, designated global terrorist. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Live from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We're running down a, um, a list of 9-11 whistleblowers with James Corbett of the Corbett Report, who joins us live from Japan here on The uh, Conspiracy Show at AM 740, Zoomer Radio. And uh, I think the... Uh, the testimony of Indira Singh, a risk management consultant for J.P. Morgan in 2001, might just be uh, the piece in the puzzle we've all been looking for. For those who contend that 9-11 was an inside job, this might provide some pretty damning evidence. So again, let's just summarize, because this is kind of complicated. I want people to be able to follow along here, James. Indira Singh, again, she's working for J.P. Morgan. And her job was to find a piece of software for J.P. Morgan, something called risk management software. So after listening to or soliciting a number of uh, bids, she gets a presentation from a company called P-Tech. And their clients, P-Tech's clients, include some of the most sensitive departments in U.S. government. The FBI, the Department of Defense, the Treasury, the IRS, the U.S. Navy, the White House. So she investigates them. And uh, she finds out that the company, P-TECH, had been started in part by funds from Yasin Al-Qadi, the same specially designated global terrorist that Robert Wright from the uh, Chicago's field office, FBI field office, had investigated. Correct so far? That's that's exactly correct. But I think it might t- be beneficial to take a step back and, and, and talk a little bit about what, what she specifically was attempting to do in her role as risk management consultant for J.P. Morgan, because uh, being one of the largest financial institutions in the world at the time, obviously that's an extremely sensitive and extremely important role. And as the risk management consultant, it was her job to try to implement the next generation of risk management software, which would be software that would 
not only be able to to scan across this incredibly vast financial empire of J.P. Morgan in real time looking for suspicious trading activity and and things like that, which could cost the the company millions or billions of dollars, I mean, extremely sensitive information, so so it's an extremely important role. But for the next generation of risk management uh, software, she was looking at implementing this this type of enterprise architecture software that would not only be able to to look at this stuff in real time and basically pop out a a warning to people about suspicious things that are happening but to actually analyze information that's happening in that across the enterprise and and look for things that might be developing in in a way almost to to actually predict what's what's coming down the line so that it could stop uh, suspicious trading activity or things like that even before it occurred and so this is some some extremely interesting uh, stuff, and and it's been being developed for for decades now, and and now we're even a decade further on from what Indira Singh was looking at back in uh, the early part of uh, 2000 uh, 2001. But uh, basically, this this type of software is a, a development of software that has been around in uh, law enforcement for decades, and it developed from from something called Promise, which was a uh, the Prosecutor Management Information System, I believe, was the acronym. And uh, that was being used by the Department of Justice in the U.S. Uh, as a way of, uh, for, among other things, examining the uh, the stock markets in real time, looking for, for suspicious trading activity. And, again, that could relate to the, the suspicious trading activity that took place before 9-11, and that relates to another of the 9-11 whistleblowers. But at any rate, so this is the type of software she was looking at, extremely powerful, extremely robust software that would really give a god's eye view of, of an enterprise, an organization, and in some in some significant ways even be able to predict things that would happen in that system. So this is obviously cutting-edge technology, and for that type of system and for a, a structure and an organization as large and as important as J.P. Morgan, you're obviously only going to be looking at the, the best of the best in terms of the companies that are out there providing this. And one would assume, obviously, that, that companies dealing in, in this type of software, which is so sensitive and which involves really a backdoor key to the most sensitive systems that one could imagine, including, as we said, the the FAA, but also the White House and, and the, the Navy and NATO and all of these extremely sensitive uh, agencies and systems, one would expect that, that this type of sterling uh, company with this incredible client roster would have impeccable credentials and would be obviously above board in all of the things that it did. But as soon as she met with P-TECH and as soon as they started trying to present their software, uh, the red flags started going up and they were asking for, for access. Even in their presentation, they were asking for access to the uh, J.P. Morgan servers and things like that and things that she was obviously just not prepared to do. And as soon as she started looking into them, she was warned by other people who were saying, oh, you're not talking to them, are you? And it was from that that she started uncovering the, the things that Robert Wright had been looking into. And, and basically, the vulgar betrayal investigation uh, had been looking into PTEC specifically and Yasin Al-Qadi right before uh, Robert Wright was taken off the case. And if you go and watch Robert Wright's uh, testimony in 2002 about what he knew and was prevented from saying, uh, you, you can basically see that he was talking about PTEC and the investigation into PTEC, although he was not allowed to use the name at the time. He was talking about this uh, software company that they were looking into that they couldn't they couldn't. Uh, they weren't allowed to go after, basically, by their their higher ups. And again, PTech. Uh, uh, let me just uh, um, get into uh, PTech's involvement, uh, or at least the software that was being that was developed by PTech and was being used by 
on NORAD uh, computers and, and FAA computers. This software um, was capable of – was it in charge of the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the simulations, that, the, the training exercises and, comp- and simulations that were going on were told of, uh, on the day of 9-11 or was it – how was P-TECH software being used by NORAD? I'm not in a position to say exactly how it was being used, but certainly we have uh, the the internal documents that show that the FAA and NORAD were conducting interoperability tests uh, on their emergency operating systems, and that was ongoing at the time of 9-11. So we know that, uh, that the P-TECH software was being used at least to analyze the systems that do control the, the simulations and, and those types of things. So, for example, during the, the uh, Global, Global Guardian simulation, I believe that was what it, the, the code name was, that was taking place on 9-11, uh, that was being operated by injecting fake blips onto the radar screens at NORAD so that uh, they could practice scrambling jets and things to intercept uh, flights. And so that was going on on the morning of 9-11, and these blips on these systems were being created by computers that themselves had this back door that was operating quietly in the background that probably no one or very few people in that organization even knew existed, but was nonetheless there and was in the hands of, of this company, which uh, was extremely uh, suspicious, we'll say. So when, when we hear from uh, FAA uh, air traffic controllers and and uh, those in NORAD saying there was a great deal of confusion. We we weren't sure which planes we were tracking. Uh, is it possible, or do we know that the um, this confusion uh, could have been created through a back door by uh, PTEC officials? It, it, it's it's certainly the possibility. In fact, it's specifically basically what this this software was designed to do was allow people into these types of systems and allow them to to change the parameters. So obviously, this this is the capabilities of the program. Whether or not there was someone sitting there doing that that day is obviously something that the the criminal investigation would have to look into. But uh, Mike Rupert was one of the researchers that was looking into Indira Singh's testimony, and he he basically his theory was that that. Cheney was in the Presidential Emergency Operations Center that morning operating the P-TECH software and directing uh, what was happening on that day. But obviously that's uh, not something that, that's been provable in a court of law at this point. Now, when Singh uh, discovered um, links between P-TECH officers and suspected terrorist organizations, was she able to get more specific? Was she able to name names? Well, uh, yes. Aside from Yasmin Al Qadi, there were there were uh, other people involved in the company who uh, had various connections to to Islamic charities, which were suspected by the U.S. government of being fronts for terrorist operations. There were uh, uh, people on the board of uh, PTEC who had written uh, uh, written essays about uh, jihad and, and how uh, Osama bin Laden was a hero and, and things of this nature. So it was. Uh, there was not just one particular person in the background in this company. It was it was something that uh, was going on. And as far as I understand, there were also people involved with the company itself who were uh, trying to work with the FBI and other investigative agencies, trying to leak some of this information about this company. But uh, for one reason or another, the vulgar betrayal investigation, which was getting on the case of PTEC, was directed off of that case. Now, 
interestingly enough, the year after 9-11 in 2002, I believe in December of 2002, uh, the Treasury Department was running uh, a, a, a scheme called Operation Green Quest, which was uh, trying to shut down various sources of, of terrorist financing. And Operation Green Quest was working a lot from the information that Wilbur Betrayal had been gathering in the 1990s. And one of the places that they raided was PTEC. And they raided the PTEC and uh, were obviously taking a look at the source code to see you know, what capabilities it had and whether they would, there was anything nefarious going on. But uh, the interesting things about that raid are that, one, the raid was uh, actually announced ahead of time by the Treasury Department and Operation Green Quest. They were courteous enough to tell PTEC they were going to be raided in a few weeks. Uh-huh. And then secondly, on, and secondly, on the very day that the raid happened, the, uh, I believe it was a, a spokesman for the White House the White House press secretary on that very same day said, yes, there's nothing wrong with the source code. It all checks out. They're an above-board company. So they were cleared instantaneously within one day. So, so one wonders uh, what was really happening in that investigation. But at any rate, uh, certainly they have been on the radar for, for a while. And uh, interestingly enough, last year an indictment was just unsealed uh, for the, the, the former CEO of the company, who had been, according to the FBI, had been lying to the FBI all along about the real involvement of Yasin al-Qadi with the, with the firm. And it, it seems that Yasin al-Qadi was not just this investor who founded the company, but was in fact intimately involved with the operations and that uh, that relationship had been attempted to be covered up. But the important thing is that Indira Singh has indicated that her research showed that Yasin al-Qadi was himself a cutout for U.S. intelligence, that he was in fact not the, the terrorist uh, in the sense of working for al-Qaeda or something like that, but he was in fact being used as a front for U.S. intelligence. So that's where her research tended to go, but uh, as for Indira Singh now, she seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth, and the last time I heard she was working on putting this information together into a book, but uh, not much has been heard from her recently. Well, she better go public quickly because that's the best place to hide. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM 740. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740. Or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. A few moments remain with James Corbett of The Corbett Report, www.corbettreport.com. He joins us live from Japan as we discuss his documentary, A Guide to the 9-11 Whistleblowers. You mentioned Indira Singh having disappeared seemingly off the face of the earth which uh, begs the question about any of the other uh, whistleblowers uh, and those that uh, want to come forward and haven't. Uh, have any of those that have come forward uh, uh, talked to you or others about uh, fe- fearing for their lives? Uh, it's not something I've specifically uh, discussed with with any of the whistleblowers, but I, I think it's implicit in in coming forward with information that that does so uh, go against the grain. And I think it's obviously a a great possibility for for a lot of these people, especially uh, people who have uh, inside 
you know, knowledge of, of some of these really sensitive things that are going on. And uh, I, as you said before we went to break, the, the best thing that uh, people like Indira Singh and others can do is to go public and stay there because that's the best way to, to, uh, to, to hide, as it were, hide in, in plain view so that when you go missing it's conspicuous and people know about it. So uh, absolutely that would be uh, something I would say to anyone who does have any you know, inside information about, about any event really is, is, to, is to go public and stay there and, and be vocal about what you know. But uh, on the issue of protecting the whistleblowers, uh, that's something that, that's really extremely important right now because we are really on the knife edge where, where we're on this, in this digital domain culture where we're shifting over away from these types of uh, corporate controlled media outlets like the, the newspapers and then the, the uh, TV stations. And we're, we're moving more into the online uh, whistleblowing and, and things like that where, where documents are being released pretty much on a daily basis now from all around the world and being posted by sites like WikiLeaks and Cryptome and other sites like that and, and really enabling sort of a flowering of, of new expression, freedom of expression all around the world and, and, and new stories to come forward. But, of course, that's, uh, the, the clampdown is, is very much uh, happening. The equal and opposite reaction is very much in the cards. So something that uh, people really need to be looking into is the ways that uh, whistleblower protection is being hindered and, and, and delimited and, and attempted to, to be brought under control. And we have to support things like WikiLeaks, which are doing such a remarkable job of bringing information to the public. Are there, uh, are there whistleblowers uh, that you didn't include in your guide to the 9-11 whistleblowers uh, for whatever reason uh, th that um, they, they asked you not to include them? Uh, they're not ready to, to go public yet? There were none that uh, that, that specifically that, that, that I didn't include because of, of those types of concerns. The, um, of course, there are many more 9/11 whistleblowers, and, and it was really just uh, at some point you have to you have to stop enumerating them. But uh, for example, in the audio documentary that I did, uh, I, I um, included uh, Abel Danger's uh, Anthony Schaefer. And Anthony Schaefer didn't get included in the article, the text of the article that I wrote, uh, and that was just an oversight. Or, or people like Kevin Ryan, who worked for Underwriters Laboratory, which uh, underwrote the steel at the World Trade Center, and he came forward about the the internal tests that 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 uh, Underwriters Laboratory had conducted that showed that the the official story of the building's collapses, where it was absolutely impossible. And and there are, of course, many others from many different uh, walks of life in many different places. But uh, this is just a I guess an introductory guide to some of the 9-11 whistleblowers, and there are many, many more stories to come, I think. Well, m many more stories to come. Do you think uh, that in and amongst the, the potential whistleblowers is that, I mean, I mentioned Adira Singh and her testimony about PTAC being, I think, just absolutely incredible. But do you think that there is even maybe someone higher up the ladder or someone who was directly involved in the alleged conspiracy who might um, perhaps uh, on his, his or her deathbed might be coming, come forward, that, that, you know, in 20 years we might actually find out what really happened? You never know, and and certainly I think everyone w would hope that that type of thing would occur in order to tie up some loose ends, but even if it did occur, the amazing thing is that it might not even really get any traction in our, our, our current media system at any rate, because, for example, two years ago, maybe three years ago now, E. Howard Hunt came forward with a deathbed confession that he had been involved in the plot to kill JFK. 
and he was obviously a famous uh, CIA agent who had long been implicated in the, in the JFK assassination, but had always denied even being in Dallas that, uh, that day. And uh, on his deathbed, he said, yeah, I was part of the plot. It went all the way up to LBJ. I was involved in these meetings with these people. He, he named some of the people who were involved in, in the plot. And, uh, and even though that audio exists, his deathbed confession, at blockbuster news, most of the people out there probably haven't heard of it because it's just not reported on. So it's absolutely incredible that these types of confessions can come out and then not even gain any traction. What's uh, next uh, for James Corbett in the Corbett Report? That's an excellent question, and uh, and one never knows because obviously I'm I'm covering the news, so it really does change on a weekly basis. But I think some of the the fundamental themes that I'm always talking about, and which I'll always return to, are critique of the media, which has so signally failed to do its job over the the last few decades, and and uh, examining the the real evidence behind things like the false flag terror attacks of, of 9/11 and 7/7 and other events like that. Also talking about uh, eugenics and the, the growth of the police state and the biometric control grid and so many of the things that are going on right now that you will never see reported on the nightly news, but which are very, very important and which we need to have our eye on. So I'm just attempting to get information out there that hopefully people can use uh, to, to make more informed decisions about their lives. And you have a book coming out this spring, uh, which is about this very topic, about the, uh, the, uh, the omission and the commission of the mainstream media, do you not? Yes, that's right. I have a book, uh, Reportage, Essays on the New World Order, which is going to be examining many of the, the various aspects that I talk about on my podcast and in my videos, including uh, including things like 9-11, but also uh, the, the financial system and how that's uh, manipulated uh, top to bottom and and uh, false flag terrorism and, and the, the mainstream media and all sorts of uh, topics that I, I cover on a weekly basis. But it, it's... Uh, some of my best writing, I think, so I'm really excited to, to get that out there. Will this be self-published or uh, offered as an e-book? Yeah, it will be self-published, so it will actually be a physical book that will be available for order through Amazon and other things like that, so people can get the link to that from CorbettReport.com. And how do people subscribe to your, your podcasts? Uh, there's a subscribe button on the Corbett Report homepage. Um, you can find all the feeds there. And uh, there's also, of course, my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Corbett Report. People can check that out. I have, I think, 160-something videos at the moment and uh, growing usually by three or four new videos a week. So uh, that's uh, one of the main ways that I'm getting the word out at, at this point. Would you be able to do what you do, uh, James, and reporting on the things that you do if you were on this side of the pond? That's a good question. That's a good question, and it's one that I've been asked before, and I, I think certainly my work would be different if I was on uh, on the other side of the pond, so to speak. If I was in Canada, I think I'd be more uh, obviously involved in, in, in sort of maybe political action on the, on the street, on the ground, talking to people and, and getting that type of thing. But since I'm in this... Uh, Obviously, non-English speaking culture with a, with a lot of people who are removed from, from the North American politics and that side of thing. It gives me a sort of outside distance by which I can take a look at these things and, and examine them from almost from afar. And yet, obviously, it's something that, that uh, it's the culture I come from. So it's, it's something that I'm involved with. So I think it, it gives me a unique position to, to take a look at what's going on. And also the fact that I'm so far removed from, from all of the, the North American corporate-controlled media, that I don't have that inundation on a daily basis. So I can see the discrepancy between what a lot of people are seeing on the on sort of the mainstream websites and in the mainstream TV and that type of thing, and what's being reported uh, under the radar, so to speak. So, All right. James, uh, yeah, when, uh, 
the ability to do that. When the uh, the book comes out, would love a, a review copy. Drop one in the mail for me, and we'll get you back on. Will do. Thank you very much for having me on today. My pleasure. Thank you. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Wow, that's pretty inflammatory stuff. All right, when we come back, open lines, conspiracies, paranormal phenomena. I'm all ears, and I'm all yours for the next half hour. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Just had an urgent email from Dr. Patricia Doyle, the lab gal we call her, who joins us on the program from time to time. She tracks emerging uh, viruses, and of course she's been all over this uh, white nose syndrome, uh, white nose bat syndrome, which is killing off uh, millions of bats, wiping out bat colonies uh, all over the northeastern United States, uh, well, as far south as uh, uh, the Carolinas, I believe. And uh, she just sent this email. Hello, Richard. This is dreadful news. White nose syndrome hits Ontario, Canada. Uh, I think we could see the extinction of certain species of bats, she writes. The bat survival colony that compromised Virginia long-eared bats is in danger now that white-nose syndrome has been confirmed in Maryland. The survival colony was an attempt to save the Virginia long-eared bats from extinction by placing a colony at the Smithsonian National Zoo in D.C. Uh, This is spreading quite rapidly. It appears that keeping hibernation caves free from humans hasn't stopped WNS from showing up. Tennessee had its hibernation caves closed to cavers, but still a year later they had cases of Uh, WNS, no stopping it, I'm afraid, she writes. No stopping it. I really wish they could try the ozone generators in small hibernation caves to see if it works. We have to try everything uh, possible. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, she sends along a a link to uh, the Ottawa Citizen. I believe it was um, today's edition. Canada's first reported case of, d- of a disease that kills bats by the thousands has been discovered at a hibernation site in the Bancroft-Minden area. White-nose syndrome, a lethal fungus that has decimated populations of bats in the northeastern region of the U.S., could pose a threat to the survival of species of bats, several species of bats in Canada. The name of the disease refers to a ring of white fungus around the muzzles and bodies of bats. The disease isn't fully understood yet, but researchers know that it affects the bats during hibernation. There you have it. It has moved up here to Canada. Now, some of you may not be bat fans. They are kind of (laughs) creepy. They are essentially winged mice, are they not? And some of the larger species, maybe even winged rats. And I certainly am not a fan of either of those little critters. However, bats, for some reason, hold a certain fascination, and I have a certain fondness for them because, essentially, they feast on something even more vile, and that would be mosquitoes. (laughs) Imagine... Uh, keeping in mind that mosquitoes eat, I think I heard, eight to ten times their own body weight in um, in uh, insects, mosquitoes primarily, every hour. Imagine how badly we're going to suffer from mosquito infestations with no bats. And that's to say nothing of the absolutely crucial role that bats play in uh, agriculture and pollinization of uh, food crops. 
this could be absolutely perilous. If you think about, uh, again, the, the crucial role that bats play in, in our lives. So this is very dire news from uh, Dr. Patricia Doyle. Again, white-nosed bat syndrome has hit Ontario. The first case uh, has been discovered in the uh, Bancroft Midland area. All right, 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, and toll-free from out of town, one 740 4740 Meanwhile, James Brown, who passed away, I believe it was uh, a Christmas day, back in 2006, the king or the godfather of Seoul passed away back on December 25th, 2006 at the age of 73. Well, his daughter says his body has gone missing from its crypt. LaRonda Petit, 48, says uh, the body of her father uh, was being hidden to prevent a full, uh, or is being hidden in order to prevent a full autopsy from being carried out. She said the official cause of death, which was said to be a heart attack brought about by pneumonia, is not the real reason behind the godfather of soul's passing. She says, my, my daddy's body has disappeared and I have no clue where it was taken, but I need to know where. I'm convinced his death was suspicious and I want the people responsible brought to justice. And the only way to do that is to exhume his body and have an autopsy. I cannot understand why one was never conducted. She went to, underwent a DNA test in 2007 to prove she was Brown's daughter and believes there was several people involved in his death. And she told America's Globe newspaper, it was common knowledge my daddy took illegal drugs. He also hooked on various, uh, he was also hooked on various uh, prescription painkillers. Pain At the very least, there were enablers who helped cause his death. So, wherever he was entombed, as she claims, his body has gone missing. Now here's, uh, we had uh, James Corbett on a moment ago talking about uh, when we get these explosive uh, uh, quotes and, 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 and testimonies from, from people like E. Howard Hunt and uh, his um, deathbed conf- confession that he was involved in the JFK murder and these things never managed to get played up in the mainstream media. Then we have uh, the um, NASA veteran who said that in 1991, while he was monitoring a space shuttle mission in the secret mission control center at the Kennedy Space Center, he was flabbergasted to observe an entity that was eight to nine feet in height in the open space shuttle payload bay while it was in Earth orbit. That was uh, Clark McClelland, who goes on to talk about having witnessed or assisted in launching 668 missions. And his final assignment was a space shuttle fleet spacecraft uh, uh, operator. Mission astronauts said they knew the space shuttles better than uh, the flight crews. They spent 12 or more hours a day inside them, six to seven days a week. Some called uh, 
them GTAs or ground test astronauts. And then he goes on to describe the incident in 1991 while monitoring the space shuttle mission, again at the Kennedy Space Center. He observed an entity that was eight to nine feet in height in the open space shuttle payload while it was in Earth orbit. He said the entity was very tall, much taller than the two NASA astronauts floating near it. He could estimate the height due to being familiar with the sizes of the interior of the payload bay of the shuttle. He was not able to view all facial features other than thinking he recognized two eyes and nose, and since it had a large helmet on, nothing else was evident. It was in a body-tight type, uh, a body-tight type uniform spacesuit, and he saw it at a distance on a 27-inch TV monitor. It appeared the NASA astronauts were familiar with the entity. The entity appeared to be communicating with the two NASA astronauts. And there was some NASA commentary from the Houston Space Center, but there was no mention of the entity. Following a few statements, the audio discontinued, and he says he cannot recall if he heard any other comments. Clark McClelland goes on to say that he observed many UFOs flying near the shuttle on many missions. The STS-48, the famous shuttle missions where they took several shots at escaping UFOs, he said he was on, uh, on duty for one of, the, one of those incidents, and NASA dismissed it as ice crystals. So, uh, there you go. Some very interesting testimony from a NASA veteran, Clark McClelland. I'm going to try and get uh, Mr. McClelland on this program uh, very soon, rest assured. All right. Open lines continue to the top of the hour. If you've got a, uh, a comment or a question regarding conspiracies, the paranormal, then let's have it. 416-360-0740-866-740-4740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, let's go right to the phones and uh, say hello to Louis in Downsview. Good morning, Louis. Hello there. Yes, I'm just calling. To, um, it was about the bat story. Yes. Um, there was a CBC program, used to be a CBC program called Marketplace. A number of years ago, they did a story on ozone generators. And uh, they were claiming in the program that um, that they're actually detrimental to health. Um, they interviewed a woman that uh, put one in her home. She said that it actually got it made her sicker. She was sick for a month and a half before she decided it was the ozone generator that was making her sick. And uh, they interviewed some ex health experts um, who claim that there is no safe, known safe level of ozone. And any amount is uh, detrimental to the body, and it's uh, you know it's known to be a um, harmful constituent of uh, air pollution caused by motor vehicle traffic. Hmm. So um, I know they still sell these things at health shows and so on, but however, um, uh, based on this television program. I warned people against it, and um, 
I, I send an email to your expert there to warn her, don't put that in a bat cave because that will drive them out of the bat, uh, out of the cave. Um, yeah, I I can't uh, comment one way or the other. I, I don't know, um, uh, you know, how uh, these ozone generators are, are supposed to work or what the health well, benefits might told, be, but... Uh, uh, okay, I was told many years ago, uh, this is a long time ago, that if you put a spark gap in your home and generate ozone uh, while you're away, it will remove all of the odors from your house. So, yes, it's a very good oxidizer. However, you don't want to breathe in the, the ozone, though. All right. Well, that would uh, that would uh, tend to suggest that yeah, they're certainly uh, going about it the wrong way if they're if well, they're yes, looking at reviving these bats. It will yeah. get rid of uh, mold in your house, but however, um, it might kill you first. In, you don't want to breathe the ozone in. Well, um, I'll certainly uh, let uh, Dr. Patricia Doyle know, and uh, that that may not be the way to go. But she'll have to investigate further. But uh, Louis, thank you for that um, report. I appreciate it. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty. One eight six six seven forty four seven forty. If you just joined us, Louis was referring to an email, an urgent email I received from Dr. Patricia Doyle, further to her reports on the uh, white nose bat syndrome, which is wiping out bat colonies in uh, the northeastern United States, and she now reports that it has hit Ontario, Canada, and uh, very dire, very dire news indeed. All right, why can't we have? Uh, white nose bat syndrome uh, affecting field mice <laughs> and raccoons, I ask you. We've had, uh, we just evicted the third raccoon from our house up in uh, Unionville. And uh, I'm pretty sure it's the same raccoon. You see, most uh, uh, pest control companies will not, uh, w- w- what they do is they, they get the raccoon out of your place and then they uh, release it within, say, a, a kilometer, a square kilometer of your house. Well, that same raccoon just uh, wanders right back into the neighborhood and, and, and finds its way into your house again. Um, or in the case of the, uh, the company that, um, that we were using, they put in a, a one-way trap door. They find out essentially where the raccoon uh, got into your attic. And these uh, raccoons are amazing. They'll just rip the, uh, the, the, uh, the soffits or the fascia away from your house and crawl in into your attic. And uh, so what they'll do is they'll, uh, they'll put a, a strong steel mesh uh, over the entran- entrance point, and then above it or beside it, they'll put a one-way a door. So the raccoon leaves your attic in the evening, because they are, of course, nocturnal animals, it leaves your attic to go and feed, and as soon as it leaves, that one-way trap door closes behind it, and he can't get back in. Well, that raccoon, will uh, he'll try to find another uh, entrance point. And uh, as I say, we've had three invasions with raccoons at our house, and uh, this time I'd had enough. We paid nearly $1,000 getting our house raccoon-proofed. So finally, I hired a company. They brought in live traps. I said, enough of this one-way trap door. Uh, we brought in live traps, and uh, last weekend, after about a week, they, uh, they put uh, sardines in these live traps, and I would go up into the attic every uh, day, twice a day, actually, and check, and nothing. And, uh, but we, mind you, we kept hearing scratching on the ceiling. And, and I called a pest control company, and they said, no, it's just mice. I said, no, it's not mice. We've got a raccoon again. Uh, finally, about a week ago, we caught the, uh, the, uh, the critter, and um, they carted him away. And uh, they promised us, wink, wink, 
he won't be coming back, if you know what I mean. So I hope we've uh, solved our raccoon problem. Um, bats, I can live with. Raccoons, uh, not so much. All right. Oh, our good buddy Nelson Fall has joined us. Hello, Nelson. How are you, Richard? I'm well, thank you, my friend. What's going on? Well, you were talking about 9-11 and the whistleblowers. Yes. I'd be very worried if I was a whistleblower and had anything that could be used in a court of law because those who have the power to pull 9-11 off and cover it up are going to be coming after all the whistleblowers and the people who could be potential threats to them, who people who could expose it. Well, I was... Sort of intimating that, <clears throat> excuse me, with uh, with James Corbett. Uh, my, my, had I more time, my, my my next question would have been just that: Why haven't these people, uh, if in fact it was an inside job, and uh, I mean, there's certainly enough evidence to warrant at least a new investigation. But if these individuals that uh, allegedly orchestrated this thing were quite comfortable in killing, murdering. Uh, nearly 3,000 uh, people, it, it certainly wouldn't bother them to kill a few uh, whistleblowers to, to, keep, uh, to keep everything quiet. So why haven't these people been killed? Well, I think probably a lot of them have. I think that if you look at the history of the JFK assassination um, and see how that was carried out and the death list there, um, Barbara Olson is... All of Sherman Skolnick reported that she was alive long after 9-11, that uh, they gave her a new identity. Um, there's no doubt it was an inside job. You can't fly airplanes and do all that they did without it being an inside job. This is the, this is the most secure place on the planet, Pentagon. It's guarded by spy satellites, Crazer Ones, all sorts of equipment. It could only be an inside job. It couldn't be anything but an inside job. And uh, they'd probably have uh, whistleblowers who part of their team uh, in order to infiltrate the real whistleblowers. The, the, these things are thought up decades in advance, Richard. Well, according to one 9-11 uh, commission uh, member, uh, I think he was the co-chair, Kerry, uh, uh, he said this was a, uh, a 30-year conspiracy, although we don't know exactly what he meant, uh, but apparently he was, uh, he was quoted as saying that. This was a 30-year conspiracy, but he wouldn't comment further. Right. Well, you know, remember the, in the Warren Commission, uh, a number of the Warren Commissioners who were not on side with the original findings um, were murdered. Um, so uh, I don't know, haven't, I, I, do, I don't know what happened behind the scenes with the 9-11 commission, whether it was unanimous, but I mean, there will be development. We've already got a 9-11 death list of the people, you know, it, and it will, it will be covered up and there'll be books and they'll cover it up the same way they did the JFK assassination. Hey Nelson, what do you got coming up uh, this week on, uh, on uh, uh, shock talk with bloom and steel? Well, with Shock Talk and Bloom and Steel, we're going to continue our, our, our investigations into what's going on right now with the Health Act and uh, also with the uh, Harpaquakes and continue to look at the, the use of um, these high-potential weapons that are being used behind the scenes in this battle backstage in the global theater. 
All right, and where can people catch uh, a Shock they Talk with get, Bruno Steele? Uh, uh, cloakanddagger.ca for the archives, and uh, dur- live during the show Thursdays at 9, they can go to www.thatchannel.com. And it's been a pleasure. You're doing a wonderful work there, Richard, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about your upcoming TV show. And uh, I, I, um, fortunately, you're, you're uh, uh, the lone voice crying out in the wilderness to bring out the truth, and uh, you're be commended, and I want to thank you for, for having me on. All right, Nelson, we'll get together for coffee real soon. soon. Good stuff. All Thanks right. a lot, Richard. Nelson Thaw. Cloak and Dagger, dot CA. A few moments uh, yet. We could probably squeeze in uh, one or two more quick calls until the top of the hour. 416 toll-free from just about anywhere. The, uh, the final moments here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. set you free. But first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Next week on the program, Dr. John Apsley, the executive director of the Immunogenic Research Foundation. That's quite a mouthful. Immunogenic Research Foundation. Now, he's a I have to be very careful because one of the things that we we don't want to do on the program is uh, is um, give uh, false hope, uh, and he's making some pretty remarkable claims here, and they are only claims. And uh, rest assured, we'll be firing off the medical disclaimer on the show. But uh, Doctor Apsley has recently claimed that baking soda can cure cancer, up to ninety percent in some cases. And uh, he's uh, specialized in accelerated wound repair and uh, cellular, cellular regeneration. He's been working in these areas for the last 30 years. Uh, so Dr. John Apsley, the author of The Regeneration Effect, will be on the uh, program likely for the full uh, two hours. That will be Sunday, March the 28th here on AM740. And, of course, you can listen live around the world. We stream in stereo at uh, zoomerradio.ca. The following week, I am working on putting a show together on uh, the Shroud of Turin and uh, the scientific evidence, mounting scientific evidence to suggest it might just be the actual uh, burial cloth of Jesus Christ. And uh, with that in mind, of course, that is my online poll for the next uh, week or two. Do you believe the Shroud of Turin is the actual uh, burial cloth of uh, Christ? And while I have a moment, let me just duck onto the website, richardserrett.com, and let's see how those results are going. richardserrett.com, it's, uh, the poll is called your call, your call. Is the Shroud of Turin the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ? Yes, it contains evidence of the resurrection, and no, it is a, cle- a clever medieval forgery. All right. 
84.6% of you say, no, it's a medieval forgery. 15.4% say, yes, it is the burial cloth of Christ, and it contains evidence of his resurrection. So 84.6% say no, and 154 say yes. Well, perhaps, if you listen in in a couple of weeks, some minds will be changed as to the authenticity of uh, the shroud. I'll lay my cards on the table. I, uh, I make no bones about it. I believe the uh, Shroud of Turin is, in fact, the uh, actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ. I have uh, studied this for uh, a number of years. I have looked at uh, the evidence, and uh, uh, I've, I've watched countless uh, documentaries and read uh, 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 probably a dozen books on the subject. And I tell you, um, I am just astounded by the... Uh, the amount of evidence suggesting it is, in fact, what it purports to be or what others claim it is. All right. Until next week, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.